Chapter Two, Part Two of the Mysteries of Paris, Volume Six by Eugène Sue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rodolphe and Sarah, Part Two. All at once, Rodolphe raised his head, dashed away his tears, and rising from his chair, advanced towards Sarah with folded arms and dignified, determined air. After silently gazing on her for some moments, he said, "'Tis fair and right it should be so. I raised my sword against my father's life, and I am stricken through my own child. The parricide is worthily punished for his sin. Then listen to me, madame. Tis fit you should learn in this agonizing moment all the evils which have been brought about by your insatiate ambition, your unprincipled selfishness.' Listen, then, heartless and unfeeling wife, base and unnatural mother. Mercy, mercy! Rodolphe, pity me and spare me. There is no pity. There can be no pardon for such as you, who coldly trafficked in a love pure and sincere as was mine, with the assumed pretext of sharing a passion generous and devoted as was my own for you. There can be no pity for her who excites the son against the father. No pardon for the unnatural parent who, instead of carefully watching over the infancy of her child, abandons it to the care of vile mercenaries, in order to satisfy her grasping avarice by a rich marriage, as you formerly gratified your inordinate ambition by espousing me. No, there is no mercy, pity, or pardon for one who, like yourself, first refuses my child to all my prayers and entreaties, and afterwards by a series of profane and vile machinations causes her death. May heaven's curse light on you, as mine does, thou evil genius of myself and all belonging to me. He has no relenting pity in his heart. He is deaf to all my appeals, wretched woman that I am. Oh, leave me, leave me, I beseech. Nay, you shall hear me out. Do you remember our last meeting, now seventeen years ago? You were unable longer to conceal the consequences of our secret marriage, which, like you, I believed indissoluble. I well knew the inflexible character of my father, as well as the political marriage he wished me to form. But braving alike his displeasure and its results, I boldly declared to him that you were my wife before God and man and that ere long you would bring into the world a proof of our love. My father's rage was terrible. He refused to believe in our union. Such startling opposition to his will appeared to him impossible, and he threatened me with his heaviest displeasure if I presumed again to insult his ear by the mention of such folly. I then loved you with a passion bordering on madness. Led away by your wiles and artifices, I believed your cold, stony heart felt a reciprocity of tenderness for me, and I therefore unhesitatingly replied that I would never call any woman wife but yourself. At these words his fury knew no bounds. He heaped on you the most insulting epithets, exclaiming that the marriage I talked of was null and void, and that that to punish you for your presumption and daring even to think of such a thing, he would have you publicly exposed in the pillory of the city. Yielding alike to the violence of my mad passion and the impetuosity of my disposition, I presumed to forbid him, who was at once my parent and my sovereign, speaking thus disrespectfully of one I loved far beyond my own life, 
and I even went so far as to threaten him if he persisted in so doing. Exasperated at my conduct, my father struck me. Blinded by rage, I drew my sword and threw myself on him with deadly fury. Happily, the intervention of Murphy turned away the blow and saved me from being as much a parasite indeed as I was in intention. Do you hear me, madame? A parasite, and in your defense. Alas, I knew not this misfortune. In vain have I sought to expiate my crime. This blow to-day is sent by heaven's avenging hand to repay my heavy crime. But have I not sufficiently suffered from the inveterate enmity of your father, who dissolved our marriage? Wherefore add to my misery by doubts of the sincerity of my affection for you? Wherefore? exclaimed Rodolph, darting on her looks of the most withering contempt. Learn now my reasons, and cease to wonder at the loathing horror with which you inspire me. After the fatal scene in which I had threatened the life of my father— I surrendered my sword, and was kept in the closest confinement. Polidori, through whose instrumentality our union had been effected, was arrested, and he distinctly proved that our marriage had never been legally contracted, the minister, as well as the other persons concerned in its solemnization, being merely creatures tutored and bribed by him, so that both you, your brother, and myself were equally deceived." the more effectually to turn away my father's wrath from himself, Polidori did still more. He gave up one of your letters to your brother, which he had managed to intercept during a journey taken by Satan. Heavens, can it be possible? Can you now account for my contempt and aversion towards you? Too, too well. In this letter you developed your ambitious projects with unblushing effrontery. Me you spoke of with the utmost indifference, treating me but as the blind instrument by which you should arrive at the princely station predicted for you. You expressed your opinion that my father had already lived long enough, perhaps too long, and hinted at probabilities and possibilities too horrible to repeat. Alas, all is now but too apparent. I am lost forever. And yet, to protect you, I had even menaced my father's existence. When he next visited me, and without uttering one word of reproach, put into my hands your letter, every line of which more clearly revealed the black enormity of your nature, I could but kneel before him and entreat his pardon. But from that hour I have been a prey to the deepest, the most acute remorse. I immediately quitted Germany for the purpose of travelling, with the intent, if possible, of expiating my guilt and this self-imposed task I shall continue while I live. To reward the good, to punish the evil-doer, relieve those who suffer, penetrate into every hideous corner where vice holds her court, for the purpose of rescuing some unfortunate creatures from the destruction to which they have fallen. Such is the employment I have marked out for myself. It is a noble and holy task, one worthy of being performed by you. If I speak of this sacred vow, said Rodolph disdainfully. It is not to draw down your approbation or praise, but hearken to what remains to be told. I have lately arrived in France, and I wished not to let my great purpose of continual expiatory acts stand still during my sojourn in this country. While I sought then to succour those of good reputation, 
who were in unmerited distress, I was also desirous of knowing that class of miserable beings who are beaten down, trampled under feet, and brutalized by want and wretchedness, well knowing that timely help, a few kind and encouraging words, may frequently have power to save a lost creature from the abyss into which he is falling. In order to be an eye-witness of the circumstances under which my work of expiation would be useful, I assumed the dress and appearance of those I wished to mix with. It was during one of these exploring adventures that I first encountered. Then, as though shuddering at the idea of so terrible a disclosure, Rodolph, after a momentary hesitation, added, No, no, I have not courage to finish the dreadful story. For the love of heaven, tell me what horror have you now to unfold? You will hear it but too soon. But, added he, with sarcastic bitterness, you seem to take so lively an interest in past events that I cannot refrain from relating to you a few events which preceded my return to France. After passing some time in my travels, I returned to Germany, filled with a spirit of obedience to my father, by whose desire I espoused a princess of Prussia. During my absence you had been banished from the Grand Duchy. Subsequently, learning your marriage with Count MacGregor, I again entreated you to allow me to have my child. To this earnest request no answer was returned, nor could my strictest inquiries ever discover whether you had sent the unfortunate infant, for whom my father had made a handsome provision. About ten years ago I received a letter from you stating that our child was dead. Would to God your information had been correct, and that she had indeed rendered up her innocent life at that tender age. I should then have been spared the deep, incurable anguish which must forever embitter my life. I cease now to wonder, said Sarah in a feeble voice, at the disgust and aversion with which I seem to have inspired you. And I feel, too surely, that I shall not survive this last blow. You are right. Pride and ambition have been my ruin. Ignorant of the just causes you had to hate and despise me, my former hopes returned with greater force than ever. Our mutual widowhood, inspired me with a still stronger belief in the prediction which promised me a crown, and when by singular chance I again found my daughter, it appeared to me as though the hand of Providence had bestowed this unhoped-for good fortune on me to further my so long-cherished plans. Yes, I will confess that I went so far as to persuade myself that, spite of the aversion you entertained for me, you would bestow on me your name and that, out of regard for your child, you would accept me as your wife if but to elevate her to the rank to which she is entitled. Then let your execrable ambition be satisfied and punished as it deserves, for spite of the abhorrence I now hold you in, I would out of love for my child, or rather from a deep pity for its early sorrows, I would, although firmly determined always to live apart from you, by a marriage which should have legitimized my daughter, have rendered her future lot as brilliant and exalted as her past life has been wretched. I had not, then, deceived myself. Oh, misery! To think it is now too late! Oh, I am well aware it is not your child you regret, but the loss of that rank you have so eagerly and obstinately striven to obtain. May your unfeeling and disgraceful regrets pursue you to your grave! Then they will not long torment me, for I feel I shall not long survive this final ending of all my ambitious schemes. But ere your existence closes, 
it is but fair and just you should be made aware what sort of life your poor deserted child's has been do you recollect the night on which you and your brother followed me into a den in the cite perfectly but why this question it freezes me with horror your looks filled me with dread as you approached this low haunt of vice you saw did you not standing at the corners of the low streets with which that neighbourhood abounds groups of poor unfortunate guilty creatures who who but i cannot finish the dreadful tale cried rodolph concealing his face with his hands i dare not proceed my own words affright me as they do me what more have i to learn you saw them i ask did you not resumed rodolph making a powerful struggle to overcome his emotion you observed these base and degraded creatures the shame and disgrace of their own sex but did you remark among them a young girl of about sixteen years of age lovely as an angel a poor child who amid the infamy in which she had lived during the last few weeks still retained a look so pure so innocent and good that even the ruffians by whom she was surrounded called her fleur de marie did you observe this this fair this interesting being answer answer tender exemplary mother no answered sarah almost mechanically i did not observe the young person you speak of but the teeth rattled in sarah's head as she spoke and her whole frame seemed oppressed with a vague though fearful dread of coming evil indeed cried rodolph with a sardonic smile indeed i am surprised at that well i did remark and upon the following occasion listen attentively to what i am about to relate during one of the exploring excursions i before spoke of i found myself in the cite not far from the den to which you followed me a man was just about to beat one of the unfortunate creatures who heard together there i interposed and saved her from his brutal rage now then careful kind and anxious mother tell me if you can whom it was i saved can you not guess speak say your heart whispers to you who was the miserable being i found in this sink of wickedness and pollution you know do you not without my assistance no no i cannot say i beseech you to go and leave me to my thoughts then i will tell you who the wretched trembling creature i thus saved from brutal violence was her name was fleur de marie merciful powers and is it possible that you most irreproachable of mothers that you cannot divine who fleur de marie was be merciful and kill me but torture me not thus she was your daughter known as the goualeuse cried rodolph with almost frantic violence yes the helpless girl i rescued from the hands of a felon was my own my lost child the offspring of rodolph of gerolstein oh there was in this meeting with the daughter i unconsciously saved a visible interposition of the hand of providence it brought a blessing to the man who had striven so earnestly to succour his fellow-men and it conveyed a well-merited chastisement for the impious wretch who had dared to aim at his father's life alas murmured sarah falling back in her armchair and concealing her face with her hands my destiny is accomplished i die 
carrying with me out of the world the curse both of God and man. And when, continued Rodolph, with much difficulty restraining his resentment, and vainly striving to repress the sobs which from time to time interrupted his voice, when I had released her from the ill usage with which she was menaced, struck with the indescribable sweetness of her voice and manner, as well as by the angelic expression of her lovely countenance, I found it impossible to abandon the interest she excited in me. I led her on to tell me the history of her life, made up of neglect, grief, and misery. With what simple eloquence did she express the yearnings of a heart that had never expanded into virtue beneath a mother's fostering care after a life of innocence, and how touchingly did she dwell on the destitution which had led her where she was. Ah, madame, to have brought down your pride and haughtiness, you should have listened as I did while your daughter described her early years as passed in shivering beggary, soliciting charity in the streets all day and at night, when the cold winter's wind pierced through the few rags she wore, creeping to her bed of straw strewn in the corner of a wretched garret, and when the horrible old hag who tortured her had exhausted every other means of inflicting pain on her, what do you think she did, madame? Why, wrenched out her teeth! And all this starving and desolation was experienced by your own child, while you were reveling in every sort of luxury, and indulging in ambitious dreams of sharing a crown. Oh, that I could die, and so escape the direful agony I suffer! Nay, you have more to hear. Escaping from the hands of the Chouette, wandering about, penniless and starving, at the tender age of only ten years she was taken up as a vagabond, and as such thrown into prison. And yet, madame, that period was the happiest your poor deserted child had ever known. And each night, though surrounded by her prison walls, she gratefully thanked God that she no longer suffered from hunger, thirst, or blows. It was in a prison she passed those years so precious to the well-being of a young female, those years over which a good and affectionate mother so carefully and anxiously watches. As her sixteenth year commenced, your daughter, instead of being surrounded by the tender solicitude of loving relatives, and enriched with all the gifts of education, had seen and known nothing more edifying or elevated than the brutal indifference of her jailers. Yet this naturally pure-minded, beautiful and ingenuous creature was at that dangerous moment sent forth from her safe asylum. A jail! And left to wander, unaided and unprotected, in a world of which she knew so little. Unfortunate, deserted, friendless child! continued Rodolphe, giving free vent to the swelling sobs which had continually impeded his voice. Yours was, indeed, a bitter lot! thrown thus young and helpless amid the mire and pollution of a great city. "'Ah, madame,' cried he, addressing Sarah, "'however cold, hard, and selfish your heart may be, you could not have refrained from weeping at the recital of your poor neglected child's misery and privations. Poor hapless girl! Sullied, but not corrupted, chased in heart even amid the degradation into which she had fallen.' for each word she uttered breathed the most unfeigned horror and disgust at the mode of life to which she was so fatally condemned. Oh, could you but have known what delicate thoughts, what noble, high-minded inspirations were betrayed in her every word and action! How good, how feeling, 
how innately charitable was her nature. For it was to relieve a degree of misery even greater than her own that she exhausted the small sum of money she had received on quitting her prison, and which, while it lasted, formed her only defence from the abyss of infamy into which she was afterwards plunged. For there came a time, a hideous time, when, without employment, food or shelter, some horrible women found her almost perishing from weakness and want of support. Under pretense of aiding her, they took her to their guilty haunts, administered intoxicating drugs, and— and— Rodolph could proceed no further. He uttered a distracting cry and exclaimed, and this was my child. May heaven's punishment be on me for what I have done, said Sarah, hiding her face as though she feared to meet the light of day. Ay, exclaimed Rodolph, and it will assuredly cling to you all your life and haunt even your dying pillow, for it is your neglect and abandonment of all a mother's most sacred duties which have led to all these horrors. Accursed may you ever be for your double wickedness towards your unoffending child. For even after I had succeeded in removing her from the guilt and pollution by which she was surrounded, and had placed her in a safe and peaceful asylum, you set your vile accomplices on to tear her thence. My curse be forever on you, for it was owing to your causing her to be forcibly carried off which threw her back into the power of Jacques Ferrand. As Rodolphe pronounced this name, he suddenly stopped and shuddered. The features of the prince assumed an expression of concentrated rage and hatred impossible to describe. Mute and motionless he stood, as though crushed to the earth by the reflection that the murderer of his child was still in existence. Spite of the increasing weakness of Sarah and the agitation caused by this interview with Rodolphe, she was so much struck with his threatening aspect that she faintly exclaimed, "'In mercy!' Say what fresh idea has taken possession of your mind. No, no, responded Rodolph, as though speaking to himself. Till now I thought to spare this monster, believing a life of enforced charity would be to him one of never-ending torment. Now I must revenge my infant child, delivered up by him to want and misery. I have to wash out the stain of my daughter's infamy, caused by his diabolical villainy and cupidity and his blood alone will serve to wipe out that foul wrong. Yes, he dies, and by my hand. And with these words, the prince sprang forward to the door. Whither are you going? cried Sarah, extending her supplicating hands towards Rodolphe. Oh, leave me not to die alone. Alone? Oh, no, fear not to die alone. The spectre of the innocent child, doomed by you to an early grave, will bear you company. Exhausted and alarmed, Sarah uttered a scream as though she really beheld the phantom of her child, exclaiming, Forgive me, I am dying. Die then, accursed woman, shouted Rodolphe, wild with fury. Now I must have the life of your accomplice, for it was you who delivered your child to this monster and hastening from the apartment, Rodolphe ordered himself to be rapidly driven to the residence of Jacques Ferrand. End of chapter 2 Read by Céline Major.